to spread rapidly. Um, they have been moved back to phase two, and we're praying that we stay in phase three here in Stafford to where we can continue to meet um, your elders. And we're going to talk about this this morning as we uh, finish up, James. Your elders are praying fervently and, and looking at all the different plans so we can continue to meet in person as much as possible. We will always continue to stay virtual as well. Um, and the fall kickoff, September the 13th, we've got a lot of exciting things that are happening uh, for the fall kickoff. We're still putting all that into place. We're going to be sending out an email and, and letting everyone know what's going on, but our life groups are going to kick off. We have the marriage night uh, the night before the kickoff. We've got a lot of exciting things that will be happening for that. So um, the fall is coming, and we're looking, even in this time of, of struggle and, and times of, of uncertainty, we're going to continue praying that God is just going to speak to us and allow us to be uh, his hands and feet into the community. So we are finishing our series looking at the book of James. And so we're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, as we bring all this together. I heard a story of three preachers that were sitting around talking, and they were talking um, about the best way to pray and what position they should pray in. And, and, and while they were sitting there, there was a, a telephone repairman um, on the lines, and he was working right next to them. And so as they were going through, the one preacher said, well, I feel that the best way to pray and to speak to God is by kneeling. That is the most effective way. And the second preacher, he said, well, I feel that standing and raising my hands up to the heavens, that is the best way to pray and to get God's attention. The other preacher, that third one, he said, you're both wrong. He says, the most effective prayer position is lying face down on the floor. The telephone repairman who had been listening decided to interject his opinion. He says, excuse me, fellas, but I feel that the best way to pray is hanging upside down from a telephone pole. <laughs> so in our passage today, one of the first things that James says to us in James chapter 5, verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? And if I were to ask that question right now, and ask you to raise your hands, I know a lot of you would raise your hands that you are suffering. If I were to say, how many of you have suffered, we would all raise our hands when we think about that. For, for the most of us, we haven't had to deal with really immense, hard suffering in our lives. But I know for some of you, you have had those intense moments of suffering in your life. And whether you've been through it in the past or you're going through it right now, you will go through it. We're promised that uh, this life is not going to be easy. So as we wrap all of this up, let's read James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. We read, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three, for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. So I want to start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. So a little bit different here. And when James wrote this, we last week we talked about looking at the Old Testament and looking at the prophets, looking at many of those examples that we have. We talked about Hebrews chapter 11 and all of those heroes of faith that are listed. But when James really wanted to dig in and he said, hey, example A, exhibit A for being able to pray with power, he says, let me give you Elijah. So let's look at the life of Elijah. Elijah lived uh, approximately eight centuries before the birth of Jesus. And he prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, they had 20 evil kings in Israel in the past. But out of all of those, the most evil king was King Ahab. If we go back to 1 Kings chapter 21, this is what we read. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So as dark of a time as it had been in the nation of Israel came this beacon of light named Elijah. Now, the name for Elijah means my God is Jehovah. And Elijah lived up to that very name. Uh, Elijah uh, uh, approached King Ahab and he gave him some rather unsolicited weather advice. And this is what we read. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. We read, as the, Lord, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, how could Elijah have been so confident of the impending predicament that was about to happen? Why did this happen? Because he prayed. Elijah's weather forecast had a spiritual purpose. You see, King Ahab had led the people of Israel into the worship of the pagan god Baal. Now, Baal was the fertility god of the pagans, and as their god, he was the one that was supposed to bring rain, to bring the fertile fields. And for three and a half years, the people of Israel prayed to the God of Baal for rain and the crops, but they received neither. And as you can imagine, the drought and the famine, it caused great suffering. The suffering that James talks about here in verse 13. And it made, it, and it made King Ahab very upset very angry with Elijah, whom God had sent into hiding. But after three and a half years, after this time was up, God told Elijah, hey, I want you to go and present yourself to King Ahab because I'm about to send the rain. 
So Elijah went and he presented himself to King Ahab and, and challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest to see whose God was real. So now go to chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 21. It says, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping before two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now what happens next is probably in the top five for me of all of the biblical stories. And we probably all heard this, but let's just go over it again. So Elijah told the 450 prophets of Baal that they could go first. Here, here, you have, we're, we're going to give you home field advantage. Here it is. Here, here it is. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 23 through 24. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So the prophets of Baal, they agreed, and they went first. Look at verse 26. And they took the, the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, Elijah, he has a sense of humor. He wouldn't have been very good at diplomatic uh, situations, but, but he had a good sense of humor, and, and this is what we have. Not very good at sensitivity training either. He probably would have been sent there by HR, but this is what we read. Verse 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Y'all know what that means, right? I don't need to break, okay. Um, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and, and needs and must be awakened. Finally, at the time of the evening sacrifice, it was Elijah's turn. And so this is what we read. After building his altar, digging a trench around it, arranging all of the wood, placing the bull on it, Elijah did something very, very unusual and something that was kind of peculiar, especially with the fact that there was such a drought. He says, hey, I want you now to soak it with water. Just soak everything. And when we read this, how many of you ever went camping and had to gather your own firewood? Is, is this the kind of wood you want to burn? No, we want to soak it with something else because we like fire. Um, but no, we, we don't want to soak it with wood. We want dry kindling. We want it to be as dry as possible to get that fire just blazing. So why would Elijah have them pour water all over it, filling the trench all the way around it? Why would he do that? It was because he wanted everyone to know that this miracle was done, not by Elijah, not by anyone else in all of Israel, but it was done 
by the power of the Almighty, the power of the one true God. It wasn't a trick. Look at verses 36 through 37. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned the and that you have turned their hearts back. I want to take note just for a second how quickly this fire came. You see, the God of Israel, they they didn't have to mope around. They didn't have to try to figure everything out. They didn't dance all around. Elijah, by himself, one against 450, he prays to the Lord Verses 38 and 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Immediately, God answered. God answered Elijah's prayer that fast. And God delighted in hearing Elijah's prayer. And God answered Elijah's prayer in dramatic fashion. See, not only did God send fire from heaven to prove that he was the one true God, God also sent the rain. It had not rained for three and a half years. And now there was rain. Why? Because of the power of the prayer of Elijah. So let's go back to James' commentary on this whole situation and this incident and how we can take it and put it into effect for our lives and in this church. You see, James was impressed that a prayer of such power came from just a common person. Look at verse 17, James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. We want to think Elijah is something superhuman, right? We, we want to think of Elijah as some special person, someone unlike us in every way, right? But what does James make very, very clear to us? It's the exact opposite. He has a human nature just like ours. Yet, he could pray in such a way. He could walk in righteousness. He could walk in faith. And we can do the same exact thing. So God delighted in hearing and answering Elijah's prayer, just like God delights in hearing and answering our prayers. And as we read through this, I think there's three different types of prayers that are broken down for us. In verse 13, we we are told to pray for ourselves. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Secondly, we're called to call upon the elders. So not only should we be praying for ourselves, we should also be asking others to pray for us, specifically the elders, especially when we're really sick. Look at verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. 
And thirdly, we're called to pray for each other. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So not only does this passage give us some indication of of how to pray, but it also breaks down of the time in which we're to pray. When are we called to pray? I believe that there are four distinct times that we have been called to pray before God. You see, James is recognizing that life is made up of triumph and tragedy, sorrow and joy, illness and sickness. They trip us up. They entangle us. We never know what to expect. Life is totally unpredictable. If you've ever had an automobile accident, you understand that. Well, they came out of nowhere, right? Or if all of a sudden everything is going extremely well in life and then you go to the doctor and your doctor tells you that things aren't as good as you thought they were. We have that happen to us all the time. In addition, we all know firsthand how sin can devastate and destroy our lives. So let's take a closer look at each one of these of of when we're called to pray. The first one, pray when we're suffering. That's what we read in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. You see, the word James used here refers to suffering of of any kind. It it can include sickness. It also covers death, disappointment, and persecution. You see, when we're in trouble and suffering, we're called to pray. As Psalm 34 verse 4 reminds us, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. You see, when we're in a mess, we're called to pray for wisdom. We're called to pray for strength. The removal of that suffering out of our lives if it is the Lord's will. That's something that we should always remember that we are praying for the Lord's will to be done in our lives. You see, we have the privilege of prayer where we can go to God at any time, in any situation, with whatever is on our hearts. Frankly, I don't know about you, but... There are people that that go through hard times, and I just don't know how they do it without God. I don't know how they do it without the power of the Lord in their lives. This life is difficult enough on its own without the power of God. I want him on my side every chance of every opportunity that I can have him. You see, the Bible is clear that suffering is a normal expectation. Remember, uh, we, we went over uh, 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at, fire, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Be prepared. Know that it is going to happen in your life. But even though we know life is never easy, we can give way to self-pity. We can get discouraged. We can get resentful. And we need to guard against that in our lives. When that suffering comes, we have to guard against that. And James here simply says, pray. Pray. When the pressures of life are greater than anything else around you, pray. Go to the Lord. 
And then secondly, we need to do it during times of praise. Praise when you have success. Look at the last part of verse 13. Is any one of you cheerful? Let him sing praise. James is saying here that that not everyone goes through troubles at the same time. God balances our lives. Now, we don't always think that, right? We think that we spend probably more time suffering than we do praising and, and having good moments, but there is a natural balance there that God lays out. There's going to be times of trouble, tr- trouble, but there's also going to be times of praising. And we need to make sure that we go to him during those times. The word cheerful suggests a state of mind that is free of trouble. When we're cheerful, we're to sing songs of praise. Just like David did in Psalm 96, verses 1 through 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. We're called to sing, to give it up to the Lord, to praise him when we're going through times of success. Because if we're not, we can have spiritual indifference in our life. And we get to thinking, well, I can do this on my own. Things are going good right now, so I don't need your help, God. Hey, God, when that suffering time comes up, I'll get back to you. But right now, things are going well. Things are going good. My bills are paid. I have a job. Everything's going good in my family. I'll get back to you later. We have to be careful because that can lead to that spiritual indifference in our lives. So we're to pray when we suffer, and we're to praise when we have success. Now, let's look at what we're to do when there's sickness. What do we do when there's sickness? Follow along with me as we read verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is a difficult part of this passage to understand. We read about Elijah Elijah and the prayer and the power that we have, and we're like, yes, is anyone suffering? Yes, we should pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing songs of praise. I mean, we can get that. Let me state up front what the question is not here. The question is not, does God answer prayer? Because we know that he does. The question is not, does God answer prayer for the sick? We know that he does. The question is not, does God sometimes answer it in ways that seem miraculously? Again, the answer is yes. All of those things are true. Furthermore, the focus here is not on what God is able to do because in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, we read, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. You see, the focus in this section of the scripture is on what the church can do. The focus here is on what we have been called to do. You see, these verses tell us how a Bible-believing church responds to sickness in our midst. What should we do when someone is sick? There's a four-step process, I believe, that James lays out for us. Number one, the person is to call on the elders. 
the word sick here is very broad. Um, it includes any serious physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and relational problems that has been come, become too heavy to bear. So the first thing is to call if you're sick. Call the elders. Number two, the elders are to go to the sick person. They go together because what? There is strength in numbers, right? There is strength in numbers. And by going in person, their prayers can be much more fervent, heartfelt, and, and earnest. In addition, by, by going to the sick person, the elders are communicating the message that the church hasn't forgotten about them. Sometimes when you're ill and you're sick, you feel like you're all alone, right? You could have your family right around you. But when they're right there amongst you and with you, you remember that, hey, the church hasn't forgotten about you. We love you and we care for you. The third one, the elders pray and anoint with oil. So when the elders come to pray, James tells them to anoint the sick person with oil. The word literally means to rub oil on him. Now, now the oil that is being used, JR doesn't just go uh, to AutoZone and pick up some Penn's oil or, or 10W30. That, that's not the type of oil that we're talking about here. It, it is olive oil. It, it was the olive oil that was used to anoint kings, and it symbolized the presence of God. And here it means the same exact thing. When the elders are going there and they're anointing with oil, they are showing the presence of God in that situation. Now here is something very, very interesting, and I want to make sure that I point this out. There's nothing special about the oil. It's, it's olive oil. It's extra virgin olive oil. You can get it from Walmart. It doesn't matter whether it's off-brand or regular brand or you know, extra, extra light virgin. It, does, it doesn't matter. Okay, what does matter is that we're using that to show the presence of the Lord. And that's the important thing that we have to hold on to and remember. You see, by anointing with oil, we are giving a, a humble reminder that all the healing must come from where? It must come from God. It must come from above. It builds faith and says to the sick person, God is here. He is the one who is able to heal you. And notice also that it is done, again, in the name of the Lord. And this is very important because it reminds us that God is the ultimate source of the power. The power is not from the elders. The power is not from the prayers. It's not from the oil. It is from the name of the Lord. Very, very important. And then the fourth part of this process, there is healing. Look at verse 15. It makes a very rather bold statement, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. You see, this fourth step in the process is just a culmination expected of steps one through three. When we go in to pray, li listen, I want to make sure that you understand this. When you go to God in your prayers, know that he can answer them. We go into it going, well, I'm going to pray because Travis told me that I'm supposed to pray, but I really don't think it's going to help. I'm going to pray because I read in the Bible that I've been called to pray, but it's probably not going to do any good anyway. 
No, we need to go into it with the confidence that God will heal. James here calls it the prayer of of faith. And this is a particular phrase that is used nowhere else in the New Testament. When the elders pray, they are to come to God with an attitude of complete trust. God's got this. And I know it. I know it in my heart that God's got this. I believe that the, the, the prayer of faith is similar to the gift of faith mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Now the text here says nothing about how the healing will come. It may be miraculous. It may be immediate healing that it comes. It may be that we're praying before the Lord that, that not only are they healed, but the doctors that are taking care of them, the medication that they are receiving, that that is what is actually going to do the healing. That there's some out there that believe, oh, I don't need the medication and I don't need the doctors because God's just going to heal me. Can God do that? Yes, he can. We've talked about that. We see it in the scriptures. But guess what? He also gave us medicine. He also gave us the doctors who are really smart. And we need to trust in them. But what's awesome is when we have that prayer of faith and we go to the doctor and we say, hey doc, this is what's going on. Can you help me? And he says, yeah, I'm gonna try, but I don't think I can. And then we go back several months later and the doctors didn't think it could happen, but yet here we still are. And and the doctor says, I don't know how that happened. I didn't expect it. Stage four cancer given six weeks and here you are five years later. The tumor's gone. I've seen it happen. And there's no greater feeling. Also, we are to pray when we suffer, praise when we have success, to call upon the elders when we have significant or when we have sickness. There's one more significant factor in this text. We're to pray when we have sin. Notice the last part of verse 15 and then verse 16. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. You see the close relationship between the physical and the spiritual here? The Greek construction here of that word if, that clause suggests that Sin may be a contributing factor to the sickness. David, after committing some pretty bad sins, started to feel the effects in his body. I want you to listen to how he describes the link between sin and sickness. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, it says, For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up and by the heat, as a, by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, it is extremely, extremely important to confess your sin to God and to others. 
that word confess in this verse means to say the same thing out. Get it out. Speak it. Verbalize it. Find a fellow believer and agree that God, what God says, and that he will forgive your sins. Now, not all sickness is caused by a particular sin. Remember that. But some illnesses stem directly from our sinful actions and our attitudes. Until those things are confronted and, and confessed, it is pointless to pray for healing. Our greatest problem with this passage comes out of verse 15. Because as I said, you know, there, there's times where I go in and, and, and I pray with full confidence, and I know others are praying with full confidence for God's healing hand in a situation. And as I said, I've seen situations where given six weeks to live, five years later, still here with us, tumor gone, what in the world, don't understand it, give glory to God. But then there's other times where I prayed the same exact way. Others prayed the same exact way, and yet it didn't happen. That healing didn't happen in the way that I expected. And when I read verse 15, James just sounds a little too confident to me. He seems a little dogmatic, I mean, James states without any qualification that the sick person will be healed. The prayer of faith will save the sick. I, I personally would rather it read the prayer of faith may save the sick, right? I mean, I, I, would, I would like that word may because it kind of builds up confidence if I say it will happen. It is an undeniable fact that not every, everyone we pray for, everyone that we anoint, will be healed. There are various ways of dealing with this reality, and none of them really satisfy me completely. I've looked over it. I've prayed over it. I've asked God to, to show me better how I can understand this. There is a mystery here that I cannot fully explain. I do not think it helps to compare this passage with other statements about prayer in the New Testament where similar sweeping promises are made. You see, those statements are, are meant to encourage us about the boldness and the boundless possibilities of prayer. They encourage us to believe that no situation is hopeless to God. And that's the point. If you take nothing else away, I want to make sure that you take that home with you today. Nothing is hopeless when we go to God in prayer. That is why James says the prayer of faith will heal. Because if that word was may in there, we'd go, eh, maybe I should pray then. No, when we read that word, will heal, we go, yes, and amen. Because we know that every situation, there is hope. Just because the doctors have lost hope doesn't mean that the great physician has given up. F.B. Myers writes, the greatest tragedy is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. How then should we pray for the sick? Three words come to mind. We pray aggressively. Because we know that God can do immeasurably more. We pray fervently. 
because the fervent prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. And we pray submissively because God understands the healing. He understands the totality of a situation. His understanding is so much greater than ours. He understands what is happening. Just because we think physical healing would be the best doesn't mean that God agrees with us. And he has a better plan. We don't understand it. And and, and side note, soapbox for a second. When you go to someone, when you pray with someone, when you go to the hospital with someone and and they are, are sick and they're on their deathbed or they have passed away, please don't go up to them and go, oh, they're in a better place. Oh, God needed them more than we needed them here. Don't do that. You will bring more harm than good by saying those words. The best thing to say is, I'm here for you. And I'm praying that God will help show you why he did what he did. Hold them. Love on them. Show them grace, mercy, and love. But be careful with the words that we use. So what does biblical healing look like? But most of us think that biblical healing is getting rid of the disease. It's like running the clock of life backwards and and just restoring the person to their previous state But healing is a very broad concept that involves coming into a right relationship with God first and foremost. That's what all of this is about. Then it touches every part of our life. The healing affects the spiritual, the body, the soul, the spirit. It involves the healing of all the broken relationships and and brings us to a place where we can receive God's blessing in a new and, and, and powerful way. Someone has said that healing in the Bible is not becoming what we were, but becoming all that God intends us to be. When we pray for healing, we should not focus on the physical to the exclusion of the spiritual, to the exclusion of the emotional and the relational sides of life. We are not healed until we are made whole on every level of our existence. As I survey this text in light of the whole Bible, the following statement seems absolutely true to me. It is not always God's will to heal physically or no sick believer would ever die, right? I mean, if, if, if God healed everyone who ever got sick, we'd be overpopulated on this earth. And there would be no reason for heaven. God had a better plan. And it was his son, Jesus Christ. You know, our Lord and Savior has, has given us some pretty amazing men in this church. We, we have four men that are serving right now as your elders. 
We have JR, we have Jose, we have Rodney, and we have Dan. We have several elders that have served in the past, and we have others that we are working hard with right now that will become future elders of this church. I want to tell you that your elders are men of prayer. In order for their prayers to make a difference, they must be men of, of vital living faith, ready to pray even in the most desperate of circumstances. On a personal note, let me add that I thank God every day for these men that we have serving now, the men that have served in the past. They are all godly men who are serving to do their utmost best of this church. They're praying men. They will pray for you, with you, with your family. If you need someone to talk with, to pray with, they will gladly be there for you every step of the way. I will tell you that if I were sick, if I was having surgery, these are the men that I would want right beside me, praying for me, praying for my family. As we bring all of this together, I have one last story I want to share with you. When Hudson Taylor, a missionary, went to China, he made the voyage on a sailing ship as it neared the channel between the, the southern Malay Peninsula and the island of Sumatra. The missionary heard an er urgent knock on his door. He opened it, and there stood the captain of the ship. Mr. Taylor, he said, we have no wind. We are drifting toward an island where the people are heathen, and I fear that they are cannibals. What can I do, said Taylor? I understand that you believe in God, and I want you to pray for wind. Taylor responded, all right, Captain, I will, but you must set the sail. The captain was agitated and said, why, that's ridiculous. There's not even the slightest breeze. Besides, the, the sailors will think that I'm crazy. Nevertheless, the captain finally agreed. 45 minutes later, he returned and found the missionary still on his knees. You can stop praying now, said the captain. We've got more wind than we know what to do with. That's the prayer of faith. The prayer that we have been called to offer up before God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18, after Paul gives us the armor of God, he says, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. If you pray the prayer of faith, God will hear it. God will answer it. He will heal. He will lead. He will be there with you in times of suffering, during times of success, in times of sickness, and even when we're trapped in sin. And as we bring all of this together, we're now going to take time for, uh, for communion. 
If you have not had your chance to get communion, it's in the back of, of both of our, our stations back here. Um, I encourage just one person from the family to get up and get it for your family if you, if you don't have it yet. Um, we're just going to take the time to pray to the Lord, to ask for his forgiveness, to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. And so as we come to him at this time every week, we remember that sacrifice. We remember that he loves us so deeply that he went to the cross, that, that, that God the Father sent his son, allowed him to come. And, and here's the thing, he had a plan from the very beginning. And so as we partake of these elements, the bread, it represents Jesus' body. He came, he lived, he went through everything that you and I went through. He suffered and he prayed to his father on multiple occasions. We take the juice, it reminds us that his blood was spilled on Calvary, that our sins may be forgiven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you so much that we are able to come into your presence, that we can sing songs of praise before you. Lord, that you are with us every step of the way. And Father, no, no matter what comes our way, tragedy, sickness, whatever it is, that you will be with us that we're not too proud to, to admit that we need help, that we can't do this on our own, that, that we will call a brother and sister in Christ. Lord, that, that we will reach out to our elders. Father, if there is sin in our life, as we prepare to take communion, that we will remember to just give it up to you, to lay our burdens, to lay our heavy hearts to allow that sin to escape and go directly before you because you've already forgiven it. We have to let it go. We pray all of this in your son's most holy and precious name. Amen. Anything you have going on right now that you'd like to speak with someone about, please don't hesitate to do so, um, myself included, uh, the rest of the staff, Jared, and we'd love to speak with you about uh, whatever that may be. Um, 
it's not good to keep it in and uh, I think a lot of times it's uh, it's one of the things the devil uses to keep us separated so don't let that keep you from uh, whatever he may be moving you today whether that be uh, accepting him into your heart uh, joining church um, uh, struggling with sin whatever that is just uh, make sure uh, you reach out we're always there um, to speak with you but as we uh, close this morning, um, we're going to close with the doxology. So please rise with us as we continue in our worship. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. God, uh, we're just so grateful for the time that we uh, have with you this morning for that healing, God, uh, and for the ability to just pray at any time, any moment, God, uh, that uh, nothing can hold us back from reaching out and communicating with you, God, uh, whether that be uh, in blessing or in time of need, God, you are there, uh, and I just pray that we continue to remember that you are there and we can pray to you uh, in everything and for everything, God. Just bless us, uh, Lord, as we depart uh, this morning. Lord, and bring us back safely uh, the next time. In your son Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Go and be blessed.